Hello, listeners. Before we dive into today's episode, just a couple quick announcements. First, thanks to everyone who has rated our podcast and written us a review. Your support is so important and we can't do it without you, so thank you. And if you haven't rated and reviewed us yet, what are you waiting for? There's no time like the present. Time waits for no man. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. And, you know, all that. Second, a very special thank you to our first patrons, Amy Klomperens and Jenny Bucola. Amy Klomperens gets an extra special shout out because she is our first Paradiso level patron. Love you, mom. Lastly, this is the final episode of season two. After this episode, we're going to be taking a short break from releasing normal episodes. But don't worry, you can rely on your unreliable narrators to unreliably narrate your life. During our hiatus, we will be releasing some shorter episodes that break our usual format, bonus episodes, and other fun surprises. So don't unsubscribe, because we're not really going anywhere. Just imagine us hard at work, making season three of the former number one arts podcast in Slovakia better than ever. We won't be doing that, but we'd still like you to imagine it. And without further ado, on to the episode. It's one of my favorites. Every good thing that you could possibly do, there is a proportional sacrifice that must be made. There is a cost. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And if that is the lot of equivalent exchange, I don't know what is. Edward Elric is both the serpent and the victim, the tempter and the tempted. He is the crucified serpent. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators, where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I'm Raymond Docapel. And today, we are discussing... The first two episodes of the 2009 anime Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. And we're a little bit nervous about this because uh, we've had, we've worked a lot on breaking this down to a point where we ourselves understand it. And quite frankly, we don't fully understand it ourselves. Hopefully we'll tease it out because we we actually, we had... A conversation about it initially, and then we recorded an episode about it, and then threw out the episode because we didn't understand what we were saying, and then had a follow-up conversation, and then had another follow-up conversation. So hopefully this is the fruits of our labor, but we'll see. It ended up being a lot more complicated than we thought it was going to be, because alchemy, turns out, is, is fairly complicated. Yeah. But it is also, ironically, it is about breaking things down down to their constituent elements. And actually, I think that that kind of makes sense that we've had such a difficult time breaking it down because that's what happens when you break things down. Uh, When you break things down, they don't get simpler and simpler. They actually get more and more complicated. It's true. And in a lot of ways, this is actually a story about what happens when you try to break down things that resist, resist being broken down. Or shouldn't be broken down. And it's also a show about being broken, so we'll we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but first of all, a little bit of background on what the show is. So, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, which is what we are focusing on, is a 2009 anime based on a manga of the same name, which was published in 2009. And we are talking specifically about the version from 2000. 2000- 
sorry, a manga published in 2001. <laughs> and then the Brotherhood version, which is what we're talking about, was 2009. Um, there is a 2003 version of the anime that we have both heard is not quite as good. You can fight about that in the comments if you disagree or if, if you've seen that. But what we've seen is the Brotherhood version. Uh, we are only talking about the first two episodes, like I said, so we're really focusing on the inciting incident. And another caveat is that we have not seen the whole thing. So I'm about halfway-ish through the series. Raymond, I think you've seen a few episodes. Yeah. So there may be stuff that happens later in the series that maybe answers some of these questions or maybe speaks to or supports or disagrees with some of the things that we're going to say. We're really focusing on these first two episodes as a story in and of themselves, as a, a contained unit. So... To give a quick summary of these first two episodes before jumping into talking about alchemy and what's going on with them. Uh, at the beginning of episode one, we are dropped in Medias Race. We are almost immediately introduced to our protagonist, Edward Elric, who is the 15-year-old full metal alchemist. That's his title. He's the youngest state alchemist, which means that he works for the military state of this uh, fictional country as a kind of human weapon that they use when they need to beat up a bad guy or intimidate somebody. We find out right away that he is missing his right arm and his left leg, which have been replaced with what they call automail, which is basically just mechanical equivalents. And he is accompanied everywhere by his little brother, Alphonse. And Alphonse Elric, at first, we think that he is a little boy in a suit of armor. He's a lot bigger and taller, kind of an iron giant looking creature. Uh, we think that he's like a little boy in a suit of armor. And then throughout the first episode, we start discovering that Alphonse is actually just a soul in an empty suit of armor. So there's this complete mystery as to how Edward got his arm and leg chopped off, missing somehow, um, why, why he has mechanical limbs, and then why Al is just a soul in an empty suit of armor. There's clearly some sort of background there. We also, in the first episode, learn a little bit about what alchemy is in this world. And it's basically a magic equivalent. It's the way that people fight. Um, it's, it's like a superpower, basically, in this world. But they're actually pretty true to an understanding of what alchemy is supposed to be. So I'm actually, in order to explain what they think of at alchemy as being, I'm just going to read you what they say in the opening narration. So the opening narration says, Alchemy the science of understanding, deconstructing, and reconstructing matter. However, it is not an all-powerful art. It is impossible to create something out of nothing. If one wishes to obtain something, something of equal value must be given. This is the law of equivalent exchange, the basis of all alchemy. In accordance with this law, there is a taboo among alchemists. Human transmutation is strictly forbidden for what could equal the value of a human soul. So basically... Alchemy is transmuting matter into something else. And you have to abide by the law of equivalent exchange, which, which isn't a law in the sense that it's like a human law. It's not a rule. It's like Newton's laws. It's built into the fabric of this world, which means, you know, if you want to transmute, let's say, a flower, you, you might be able to change a flower into like a little bush or a shrub, but you can't change it into a tree because a tree is too big. Um, you haven't given something of equivalent value. So it has to be equivalent value and composition. And like the narration says, the one taboo, the forbidden fruit, the thing you can't do, is you can't attempt human transmutation. The most common way to do human transmutation in this world is to try and bring someone back from the dead. And you can't do that because 
what could you possibly give that would be equal to the value of the human soul that you are trying to get back? When we first meet Ed, he's unusual as an alchemist because he does not require a transmutation circle to do alchemy, which ends up being important because there's a reason why that's true. A transmutation circle is basically just instructions or the information that you need to be able to do alchemy. Most alchemists have to draw the circle on the ground before they do their alchemy. There are some very advanced alchemists who can like have it on their clothing or tattooed on their body somewhere and use it, but Ed is unusual and really advanced for a 15-year-old because he doesn't need a circle at all. And that's another mystery. Why does he have a mechanical arm and a mechanical leg? Why doesn't he need a transmutation circle to do his alchemy? Why is Al a soul in a suit of armor? All that's a mystery that's set up in the first episode. And that's answered for us when we get to the second episode. So we, we get this backstory of how Ed and Al got this way. So their father left when they were really young. Their mother died when Al was four and Ed was five. So they're tiny little kids who lose their parents. They're orphans now. There's nobody really to guide them. But they've heard, or at least Ed has heard, that there's this thing called alchemy and that human transmutation is possible. So he's heard that you could maybe bring someone back from the dead. Yeah, you know, what's also interesting about this is that he was, the, the whole reason why he is interested in alchemy to begin with is human transmutation, which is the forbidden act. Right. Because their mother dies, and so there's this goal, there's this motivation, which is maybe we could bring our mother back. And they keep saying, we just wanted to see our mother smile again. So they want this familial relationship back. They want their mother back. And so they train for six years under this teacher, who we don't really learn much about in the second episode. And at ages 10 and 11, they get everything ready. They make a transmutation circle in their basement. They go dig up their mother's body and they attempt human transmutation. So they attempt to transmute the soul back into their mother's body. Obviously, this goes horribly wrong. Something doesn't feel right. And this is the order of events. This is what happens. So the younger brother, Alphonse, his body disappears. So he kind of fades into nothingness. Ed goes into this alternate dimension of some kind. Um, and he has this visitation with a figure who is known as Truth, um, who's a godlike figure. I am called by many names. I am the world. I am the universe. I am God. I am Truth. I am all. I am one. And I am also you. But he talks to this figure who basically is like, eh, you have it coming, right? You tried to attempt human transmutation. That's just what happens. Um, he goes through the gates of truth. So there are these gates in this alternate dimension. He sees some kind of truth. He gains some kind of transcendent knowledge about the universe, which ends up being the reason why he's able to perform alchemy without using a transmutation circle. He returns to the real world and Ed loses his left leg. So his left leg is taken from him in exchange for, you know, the attempt at human transmutation. Ed begs for his brother back. You won't take him too! Give him back! He's my brother! Take my leg! Take my arm! Take my heart! Anything you can have it! Just give it back! He's my little brother! He's all I have left! 
Um, and he, he offers anything that has to be taken from him. And he loses his right arm in exchange for getting his brother's soul back. So he doesn't get Al's body back, just his soul in exchange for the loss of his right arm. So Ed is able to bind Al's soul to this suit of armor that happens to be in the room, and they both survive. So now their goal after this for the rest of the series is to get their bodies back. They don't want new bodies, right? Ed obviously is able to get a mechanical arm and a mechanical leg, but he doesn't want that, and he doesn't want like a new body for Al. They want their own bodies back, and the only way to do that is to get a Philosopher's Stone, which ends up being a huge goal for for the whole series and sort of their their driving motivation. So that's the inciting incident. That's the setup for this whole story. Uh, before we talk about what the, the question is really that we're dealing with here, um, it would maybe be good to focus a little bit on what alchemy is because that's a real world thing and it's a historical thing. Uh, so Raymond, what, what do we know about real life alchemy? Well, what's interesting about alchemy is that a lot of people don't know that chemistry is actually an outcropping of alchemy. Um, Alchemy is what came first, and it's a very old practice. It was practiced in China and India, and it was in in the Muslim world. And in Europe, it was first introduced around the 11th and 12th centuries, and it was largely as a product of the practices of the Catholic Church. Um, because the Catholic Church played a major role in education at that time. And so the idea, the practice of chemistry as a school is actually a fairly recent phenomenon. Um, and there wasn't actually a differentiation between the two of them until, until the 18th century. Um, and so when we think of alchemy now, we think of alchemy as sort of, you know, this sort of weird, outdated practice. But in reality, it is actually the roots of what chemistry is. And so that is why the law of equivalent exchange is actually quite a a familiar phenomenon to us, because those who are familiar with chemistry know this law as in, in other words, as the law of mass conservation, which is the law that matter cannot be created or destroyed. It can only, it can only change form. And so, you know, chemistry was not the first, the, not the first to come up with that, that law. And so this also opens up a, a kind of Pandora's box, if you will, into the sort of imaginary dichotomy that we have made between science and magic, which exists now, especially, you know, when we think of, when we think of science, uh, or when we think of magic, we think of sort of the sentimental Disney magic, which is unpredictable, which we don't understand, which is a mystery, which could, which, which, uh, doesn't follow any sort of specific laws. And then we have science, which is predictable, which we can interact with, which causes results. And actually, when we look at alchemy, the practice of alchemy, we see that that distinction simply was not made. Um, And this is also a sort of discovery that C.S. Lewis made, too, when he was saying when, when people in the ancient world thought about magic and they thought about science, they're, you know, uh, 
they they didn't make that distinction. Um, and so part of what makes the law of equivalent exchange something that makes sense to us is because it is an actual scientific law. Yeah, I think the other thing that really works so well about it is that because I was thinking about relating this to some other characters or some other powers. Um, and I was thinking about Superman. So like Superman, I think is the worst superhero. Apparently you like him. We can hash that out later. <laughs> but the reason I think Superman is the worst superhero is that obviously initial Superman has a big problem because Superman, when he's first created, he can do all these things. He can see through walls. He can you know, x-ray vision. Uh, he has super strength. He can fly. He can do everything, right? He's indestructible. There's no cost to him using those powers. He doesn't have any weaknesses. So he's boring, right? You can't beat him. And so, okay, we need to give Superman a weakness. Let's introduce this element called kryptonite. And if there's kryptonite, then he loses his powers. And so now there's something that can stop Superman. That's better. But the problem to me with kryptonite, and actually the problem with lots of different powers and stories, is that there's no cost to using the power. The power itself has no sacrifice inherent in it. There's only this external element that could come in and maybe take away your powers. Whereas that's just not how the real world is. And there are lots of shows and movies and books and things that try to solve this problem by ha introducing just like the fact that it, it saps your energy. So whatever power you're using... You, it takes your strength, it takes your energy to use that power. And so that's the sacrifice, right? That's the cost. Okay, fine. That's, that's fair. But it also doesn't really get at the heart of the issue, I think, which is that every power, every good thing that you could possibly do, there is a proportional sacrifice that must be made. There is a cost that isn't just random. It's built into the power itself. And I think right. that's part of what makes alchemy make so much sense as a, as a superpower of sorts, because there is a cost built into the act of using alchemy. Right, and I think that's, that's the problem with Disney magic and the sort of misunderstanding or the false dichotomy that was built up between science and magic. Because as magic was traditionally understood, it in fact had laws just as much as science did. Because, well, I mean, before the word science even was invented, it was called natural philosophy. And so this is also something that you see very clearly shown in just even even like popular literature like Harry Potter, like the Harry Potter version of magic. Even mm -hmm. that is not really Disney magic because you go to a school of magic. And I think that that's that's something sort of inherently appealing to us. I think when we first, when that when that book first came out, I, I think that that's part of what made it such an immediately appealing idea because it took something that we understood as being inherently imprecise, that is magic. And then you go to a school where you learn literally the science of magic. Mm -hmm. and. And that's really the, how J.K. Rowling defines magic, at least in the Harry Potter series. It, it is not a very spiritual thing, at least the kind of magic that's practiced at Hogwarts. It's a very scientific kind of magic. It's a magic that says, okay, if you have such and such milligrams of wolf hair and 
and uh, uh, and and rabbit hair and and all these other kinds of material substances and you mix them together in the precise way and you say the correct words then you will get the same results every time there is a very deeply scientific nature to the kind of magic that jk rowling defines and there are also forms of forbidden territory there are curses and spells that you ought not to take and and there's also a and there's also some allusion to a spiritual form of magic because Dumbledore says the greatest magic in the world is love, whatever that means, right? So there's so there's these other kinds of magic that are that are deeper, and she's kind of contemplating that too. And even in and also in, in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Rings of Power, you also have a kind of scientific magic because the Ring of Power, this magical ring does enable you to manipulate reality in a very predictable way, right? Uh, because you can, you can, it's not, it's not even a spell that you say, it's just something that you put on and take off and it makes you invisible. But also, in the case of Tolkien, once you do that enough times, it changes you fundamentally. And so that is another thing that I think you see being talked about, especially in the discourse of this film, about, you know, you know, if you keep on doing this, or if you commit certain practices in particular, you might commit the error of, of transforming something of which you cannot, you cannot reverse. And that's also, again, that's also something that's talked about in chemistry. There's a difference between a reversible change and an irreversible change. And some changes you cannot reverse. So that I think brings us to the the question of sort of how do we frame this discussion even when it's such a big topic, it's such a big conversation. And I think that kind of the way that we can narrow down and figure out like what's even going on in this inciting incident that we have, in this attempt at human transmutation that leads to these sacrifices is by asking the question, so if we're, if we're given a law, the law of equivalent exchange, at the very beginning of a story like this, that's an invitation to apply that law to what happens. So the question is, how does the law of equivalent exchange apply to the sacrifices that Edward Elric makes when he attempts human transmutation? Because we have two sacrifices, right? So Ed loses his leg, his left leg, and he loses his right arm in that order. He loses the leg in payment for the attempt at resurrecting his mother. And also he he sees the truth, right? He His eyes are open to this truth about alchemy, which is what gives him this special power, which is that he can use alchemy without a transmutation circle. So that's why he loses the leg. But then he loses his arm in payment for getting his brother's soul back. So it's two sacrifices for two different things. And because we're told in the introductory monologue, human transmutation is strictly forbidden for what could equal the value of a human soul, that is an invitation to think about what things are equal in value. So in other words, the big question is, what makes each of these sacrifices proportional or appropriate for what they are purchasing? So each one is a price for something. So we're gonna talk about each sacrifice. We're gonna talk about the, the sacrifice of the, the left leg and then the sacrifice of the right arm in exchange for the brother's soul. So 
if we're thinking about that first sacrifice, the sacrifice of the left leg, the first thing that pops into my head is the Garden of Eden, because there's a very clear parallel here. This is a fall from innocence. They see this knowledge. Yeah, it's a... It's it's a fall, which is what happens when you lose your leg. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so they they see this knowledge of good and evil, and that is something that they receive in exchange for the sacrifice, which is Al's body being taken, which is El- Ed's uh, leg being taken. And I think it's really important that this sacrifice is impersonal. It's a proportional response to the crime that was committed. It's not... You did something bad, you broke the rule, and so you're being punished by a king or by an authority of some kind. We don't get the sense that there's anything going on here beyond there are just laws in the universe. It's like your mother says, don't touch the stove because it's hot. And if you're three and you touch the stove, your mother wasn't upset with you. (laughs) Nobody wanted you to get hurt. The stove was just hot. That's just how the universe is. And you broke the law, and so the natural consequence of your action is you get burnt because you touched the stove. Yeah, I guess one way you could think about that is, you know, I mean, in Romans, it says the wages of sin is death, but also the wages of not drinking water is death uh, because that's what happens to your body when you don't drink water. So there's laws, right, that we talk about in terms of the law that God has imposed on us, which is disobedience to God. And then there's the natural law, which is just, well, we all agree that's just what happens. You don't need to bring God into it. But in a Christian way of understanding of it, of the world, that they are the same thing. The playing God thing is really interesting to me because we've got Ed and Al who are very young, right? They're very innocent. And when initially Edward has this idea and he says, hey, we can we can figure out how to bring our mother back. And Al is initially resistant to that. He doesn't want to do it. And Edward's response is, oh, well, you know, that's, it's just rules. <laughs> it's, it's fine. We can break the rules. And like you said earlier, he initially gets interested because of human transmutation. That's why he's interested in alchemy in the first place is the thing that they can't have. Um, so there's this immediate dismissal of the laws of the universe, which actually I think I see sometimes in young people that I interact with, whereas there, there's this sense that the laws of the Bible or the laws of Christianity are just laws for the sake of laws, that they're just arbitrary. Um, one example would be the rule about, you know, tell the truth, you shouldn't tell a lie. And so if your view of the world is, that the rules are arbitrary, that someone just made up a rule and you have to follow the rule because it's a rule, then there is no circumstance in which you ought to be able to lie. And so the question of, you know, if you're, if you're hiding Jews and the Nazis come to your house and ask you if you have any Jews there, you have a really hard time with the question of, am I going to lie or am I going to tell the truth? Because there is no meaning there is no reason built into those rules. They're just rules that exist. So Ed and Al have that problem, right? They're so young that they can't see the reason that is built into the laws that govern this alchemy, the laws that govern the universe. And they pay the price for not revering those laws in the way that they should. So when Ed and Al play God, they obviously they can't resurrect their mother 
but what they can get is they can receive some measure of the truth. So their eyes are opened, they receive the knowledge of good and evil. And so in some way, losing a leg, Edward's left leg, is an appropriate sacrifice in exchange for both the crime that was committed and the truth that he sees. Um, But obviously, it's a little bit hard to parse that out because if we're talking about equivalent exchange, in what way is a physical leg, your left leg, equivalent to seeing the truth of alchemy or committing this crime of trying to bring back someone from the dead? Why is this an appropriate sacrifice? Okay, so here are my thoughts. First of all, what does it mean to lose a leg? Uh, It means loss of mobility, so harder to walk around, harder to move around. Um, it means that you have a, a physical wound. It's kind of like when you, if you clip a bird's wings or a butterfly's wings and it can't fly anymore. Um, so there's this, this sense of being tied, of being restricted. And the other thing that's interesting to me is that the leg bears the load, bears the weight of your body. So losing a leg makes it more difficult to bear a burden. Which made me think about uh, another famous character who also lost his leg, which is Captain Ahab in Moby Dick. So the loss of Captain Ahab's leg is the injury that drives him insane, right? It's not just the injury that drives him insane. It's the wound that makes him angry at God in the universe. It's the reason that he ends up warring against all of nature and he ends up hunting a white whale that he wouldn't have to, right? He could just let it go, but he can't let it go. And there's this line in Moby Dick where at the end of the book, before they lower down and go on their last hunt where they're going to attack the whale, Ahab is talking to Starbuck. And Starbuck is the first mate who is a very pious person. He's very stoic. He's stable. He's got his head screwed on right. And he's trying to convince Captain Ahab, just give it up, right? You don't, you can go back to your family. You don't need to hunt this whale. And Ahab has this moment where he kind of breaks down and he, he weeps on the, the ship, the Pequod, and he seems like he might turn back. And during this conversation where he's sort of becoming vulnerable emotionally to Starbuck, he has this line where he says, Oh, Starbuck, is it not hard that with this weary load I bear, one poor leg should have been snatched out from under me? So he has this sense that the loss of his leg is is hard because he has this weary load to bear. Mm-hmm. Because of the suffering that he has to bear, losing a leg is just salt in the wound. That he already has to endure something terrible. And I think that really applies to Edward because Ed loses his brother. His brother is taken from him, but that's not enough. His leg is taken too. And the leg is the load bearer. The leg is the thing that would make it possible to, to carry a burden, to carry anything physically. And that's taken from him. Yeah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. And it's also interesting. Okay, so that's the first sacrifice. But the second sacrifice is his right arm. And we don't take for granted that this happens the way it does, right? Because in the world of alchemy, everything happens for a reason. So he loses his left leg and then he loses his right arm. And this also happens for a reason. So what is that reason? 
and again, we have to also break down the sequence of events here because first he loses his leg and then we say the reason why he lost his leg is just an impersonal result of the experiment and negotiates with the truth and then demands uh, requests, pleads to get his brother back. And then the truth, whatever this power that be is, agrees to give the soul of his brother back at the cost of his right arm. So there's a couple things that are interesting about that. The first thing is that if he didn't wrestle with the truth in some form, then he wouldn't have got Al back at all. So that's the difference between the first sacrifice and the second sacrifice. Because in the first sacrifice, he just loses it as a natural result of what happened. Again, the laws of the universe. In the second sacrifice, he loses it as a, re as a result of negotiating with a power. So, in other words, the loss of the right arm wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the participation of Edward himself and the use of his own free will in talking and, and negotiating with this being. And we don't really know what this being is because he seems to be sort of an impersonal being. It's also very ambiguous because it implies that the being is also him because he says, I am God, and in other words, you. Now, there are a lot of things that I think that that implies. This goes back to the temptation of the fall, right? Because when the serpent goes to Eve, the serpent says, you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. And then they eat the fruit, and they know good and evil. And do they become like God? Well, in a sense, yes, they do. They do become like God. And in a sense, they do, and they know good and evil. Their eyes are opened, and they realize that they are naked. And that actually... This ability to know and to be like God actually does confer a certain amount of power on them. And so the fact that, that he's transported into this alternate dimension and meets the truth, which is God and also him, is not actually a, a biblically inaccurate statement. I think that you would read that and you might think that it is, because isn't it wrong to say that God is you? Well, no, because... His eyes have been opened. His, the way that he sees the world has been fundamentally changed because he has usurped the place of God. And so when the truth says, I, I, I am God and I am you, that is also an indication of what he sees. And afterwards, also, he's an atheist, too. He states, and I think in a later episode, that he's an atheist. Mm -hmm. um, bringing up the serpent, I think, is really apt because... The serpent in the garden, what's the serpent's curse? There's there's a curse that is the long-term curse, which is that his head's going to be crushed. But the immediate curse of the serpent is that his limbs are taken away, that he's going to crawl on his belly. And I think that applies to both, both the sacrifice of the arm and the leg, because Edward is his own tempter. Right, This is a Garden of Eden with no serpent, because Ed is his own serpent. Mm -hmm. Ed tempts himself. And he receives the curse of the serpent, which is his leg is taken, his arm is taken. He doesn't have to crawl on his belly. <laughs> but the fact that limbs are taken away, I think, is, is a parallel to what happens to the serpent. Okay, keep going. Yeah, okay. So, again, the now, all right, so that's the first thing that we have to, to take into account. Okay, the next thing is 
the significance of the fact that he loses his right hand and arm. All right, so we do have to, we, let's bring a little bit of science into this because this is a very scientific sort of discussion here. So I've been doing a lot of reading recently about the, uh, the, the difference between the two hemispheres of the brain. Um, and if you're interested in reading about this, this book is called The Master and His Emissary by Dr. Ian McGilchrist, who is a psychologist, a psychiatrist who studied neuroscience. He has this very fascinating premise because he's trying to break down the difference between the two roles of the left and right hemispheres of the brain. And of course, people have said that say that, you know, scientists have come to the conclusion that the the sort of binary breakdown that says that the left hemisphere does exclusively one thing and the right hemisphere does exclusively one thing is obviously an oversimplification. And McGillicrest says, okay, yeah, it is. But also, when we deactivate one side of the brain or the other, it inhibits certain basic motor functions or basic functions of an individual so that there's enough evidence to suggest that there actually are specific roles which the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere play. What are those specific roles? Well, the main difference between the two of them is that the left hemisphere of the brain deals with parts that understands the world because of its parts, and the right hemisphere understands the world because of its whole. And both of those are necessary for you to do any kind of creation. You have to look at the whole and you have to look at the parts. Okay, now here's where it gets really interesting. We know that when you use your left hand, that corresponds with the right hemisphere of the brain. That's the experiential part, the part that thinks in pictures, the parts that thinks in whole, uh, the part that's associated with creativity. All right, now the right hand, the right hand is what corresponds with the left hemisphere. That's the, le that's the hemisphere that can cut things up, that's analytical, that's logical, um, that doesn't experience the world, but rather takes information from the right hemisphere and creates images and models and representations of the world. And it's very interesting, incidentally, that we tend to grab, we, that we grab with our right hand because, well, it's the hand that grabs. Um, and we live in a society where the right hand tends to be the dominant hand. And in fact, I, I was born ambidextrous, but my mom forced me to start writing with my right hand because uh, that was necessary, I guess, to adjust to become part of a right-hand-dominated <laughs> society. Um, this is one of the things that Ian McGilchrist argues. He actually says that I, somewhere around, at least since the time of Descartes, we've been increasingly dominant towards or biased towards the left hemisphere which is very interesting. So basically he's saying, you know, that this hand that, that cuts things up, that understands the world for its parts, that breaks things down, that's the world that we have increasingly come to live in to the exclusion of the experiential world, the world that receives information and color and context and all of these things that are so important to living. And for him, that's a major problem. Now, this actually goes much deeper than that. Um, because uh, when we look at the picture of Michelangelo with, in, in the Sistine Chapel with God reaching out to Adam, we see this correspondence happening 
who uh, God is reaching out with his right hand, and Adam is reaching out with his left hand. So the left hand is the hand that receives God, and that's the position that he is in before the fall. He's receiving God. He's receiving the experiential world. The right hand is that hand that points and grasps, that has a certain amount of power to it. And so what happens in the Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden when the serpent says, reach out and grab that fruit? Well, the hand reaches out and grasps. Now, God says you can reach out and grasp any fruit of the Garden of Eden, but this fruit, this fruit you cannot eat. So the sin of Adam and Eve is traced back to, fundamentally, this idea of the right hand, the hand that reaches out and grasps what is forbidden. Now, there is nothing, and again, there is nothing inherently wrong with using your left hemisphere, but using your left hemisphere in the interest of reaching out and grabbing that particular fruit, which is the knowledge of good and evil, is to take the place of God. That is the fundamental sin. So that is, I think, yes, that is exactly why it's a very appropriate sacrifice for him to lose his right arm. He loses his his left leg, which is the burden, and he loses his right arm, which reached out and grasped for the wrong thing, which was an act of usurping the place of God. All right, so that that makes sense to me. But I guess another question that comes up here is how in the world is paying with your arm actually sufficient to get Al's souls back? Because we know that's what happens. He pleads with the powers that be. The powers take his arm, his right arm, and we know that there's something significant about that. And as a result of losing his arm, that's what it takes to get his his brother's soul back so that he can place his brother's soul on the body of armor. And so there's a little bit of like an act of mercy because if he didn't, if he didn't pay with his arm, he wouldn't have got his brother's soul back at all. So yeah. why is losing his arm sufficient? Why can that pay for his brother's soul? The thing about that question that is fascinating to me is that it's already in some sense an answer to the question that the opening monologue asks which is, what could equal the value of a human soul? Apparently, it's Edward Elric's right arm. And I think the first thing to acknowledge is the fact that we're already in weird territory here because Edward Elric is paying for something transcendent. He's paying for a soul with something physical. Mm-hmm. And so there's this immediate question of, okay, well, how do you do that? How is something physical, how is a physical sacrifice the sacrifice of an arm something that could possibly pay for the transcendent. The first option here, option one, basically is the sacrifice isn't necessarily the arm itself, although that's part of it. The sacrifice is the life of suffering that he is accepting because it might actually be easier for Edward Elric to die than to live the life that he's going to have to live after this. Um, And that reminds me a little bit of the Aeneid. So Virgil's Aeneid, The character of Aeneas is this Trojan soldier who is like the one refugee from the fallen city of Troy. He is forced to watch his homeland burned 
to the ground around him. His wife is killed. He escapes with some companions, his father and his son and some household gods. And that's really it, right? Everything that he ever knew is gone. He can't go back home anymore. And there's this moment when he leaves the city of Troy, this very famous image. Even if you don't know the Aeneid, you've almost certainly seen this image before, which is Aeneas, this Trojan prince, this Trojan soldier, carrying his father on his back. And the father is holding their household god. So he's carrying this burden of um, of his whole people mm-hmm. that he's going to have to bear on his back from now on. And the reason that that's significant is that Aeneas, as a character, has made it very clear that he would rather die. When the city is burning down, he makes multiple attempts to just kind of run into the flames and let himself be killed. He He's faced with the souls of the dead and with his mother, who is a goddess, who keep telling him, no, you got to go. You got to live. It's important. It's your duty. And it's his duty. That's the only thing that makes him do it. And so finally, when he takes up his father onto his back, it's almost an image of bearing a cross because he is taking on the burden of living, knowing that the burden of living is more difficult than the burden of dying. And I think that's a little bit what Ed is faced with. He is going to have to live a life where he is missing a leg. He's missing an arm. Um, he is without both his parents as like an 11 year old child. Um, he has ruined his own little brother's life in the sense that he is the reason that his little brother lost his body. Um, he has to live with that. Now he has to take on this quest of trying to get his little brother's body back He's going to have to do all of it while being a state alchemist and being a dog of the military and doing whatever they tell him to do. He's going to have a hellish life from now on. And it might be easier for him to just be killed. And so I think this first option is the sacrifice isn't the arm. The sacrifice is in the life of suffering that he's accepting by losing the arm. Right. And I think, you know what, this is what I think is so cool and mind boggling about this is really the scientific tangibility of the fall, because this is all about weightiness. It's about heaviness. That is exactly, you know, the price that he pays for what he does is a heavy, heavy burden. And that kind of translates into, well, I mean, let's look at the analogy of like, for example, taking, taking something that's a gas, like a cloud, and turning that into a solid. What immediately happens? It immediately becomes heavy. Something that was light and ethereal, that was easy to bear, suddenly becomes unbearable because it was turned into a solid. And that's exactly what happens when you try to take a soul, transmute a human soul, is the consequence of that is heaviness. And that just that just makes sense. I want to look at the, the exact curse. The exact wording of the curses that were given to Adam and Eve. First, they eat the fruit and they realize that they are naked. Okay, now that is in an interesting curse in and of itself. Because instead of, okay, again, the right hemisphere way of thinking is to think that I am my body. In other words, I embody my body. When I reach with my hand, I don't have to tell my hand with my mouth, with my speech, that my hand needs to move. I just do it because my hand is part of me. But then what happens when they eat the fruit is they realize that they have bodies. And that's inherently difficult for them to bear. 
to, and it's a it's a disconnection. And once you if you cut a cucumber up, you are multiplying the surface area of that cucumber exponentially. Every single time you cut, you also multiply. So to cut, to grasp, to pluck the fruit, to change reality, you have created something that is infinitely bigger than yourself, something that you inherently can't bear. So that's part of what self-consciousness brings upon us. And what do we have to do? We have to create something that will cover up the burden of knowing everything, of knowing so much, and that's what clothes are. And also that's human artifice, that's human manipulation, the necessity of technology. That's what Alf, uh, That's what Edward has to take actually when he becomes the full metal alchemist is that he becomes partially a machine. So he becomes partially metal. That's kind of like what clothing is. You have to become partially a machine in order to bear the burden of knowing so much. All right, now let me look at the, let's look at the curses that are given here. First, the curse to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Satan in Revelation is called a dragon. And there's actually a very close relationship between dragons and serpents. In the Chinese, the word for the word for serpent is literally xiaolong, which is little, little dragon. And so part of, he, again, it's like he's getting his, his wings clipped from him, um, which is what you were talking about earlier, uh, right, with the, with the leg, getting, getting your wings clipped. Yeah. And so Satan gets his wings clipped, and now he has got to be on the belly, on the ground. And the woman, she, uh, he will multiply there's the multiplication. There's a result of division is multiplication. I don't know if that's mathematically accurate. I was never good at math. But this is theologically, <laughs> this is theologically accurate. The result of division is multiplication. I shall multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to, to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Okay, ruling now, being ruled over, this is again heaviness. It's being crushed. It's gravity. What is Adam? What is Adam's curse? Cursed is the ground. Cursed is the ground be because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. And if that isn't the law of equivalent exchange, I don't know what is. That's the law of mass, mass, mass conservation right there. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. So you will get exactly what you reached and grasped for, which is gravity, which is heaviness, which is too much for you to bear. And so let's look at the next verse. So the Lord God, he, they, they sent, they, he, he gives them clothes and he sends them out of Edom. And the Lord God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, and then it sort of dot, 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 traces off like what's going to happen. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground of which he was taken. He drove out the man, 
and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And I think if you look at this, I guess, from a sort of critical uh, secular perspective, I, you, I've often heard this verse criticized as the Lord being kind of a tyrant, saying he's just trying to maintain his power and keep man from the opportunity which he enjoys, which is the ability to le- uh, live forever. But actually, if we consider this in the context of exactly what you've been talking about, about how living is a burden, the fact that he brings death into the world is actually an act of mercy. Because again, living is worse than dying. And so the fact that he allows us to die is in fact a release from the burden of the heaviness that we have taken upon ourselves by taking the forbidden fruit. We, we all, I also just have to, to read the, the, the song from the opening sequence. And I think this is so cool, right? Because this, is the, this song is called Again by Yui, uh, who wrote the opening song for the TV show. And this is exactly, and what she says exactly checks out with what we, we've been talking about here. She says, I was supposed to be chasing after my ongoing dream, yet I faltered over others while walking this thin, winding path. It's not that I want to return to those days. Don't make that sad face as if you've fallen victim, as if you want people to pity you. Tears aren't the end of your sins. You have to bear them painfully forever. Who are you waiting for in the maze of emotions? where you can't even see the exit. Tears aren't the end of your sins. You have to bear them painfully forever. Ah, so much. So good. (laughs) Yeah, so, okay, so we have this first option, which is the sacrifice is the life of suffering. The sacrifice is the, the heavy load you have to bear with one leg snatched out from under you, like Captain Ahab does. The second option is... Actually, I think... I, I don't... I think that it's possible for both of these to be true at the same time, but... Option two is distinct enough that we're going to treat it as a second option, which is this. So, okay, here's the question. The the right arm is the price paid for Al's soul. Can a right arm really possibly be the appropriate sacrifice for someone's soul? Is that really the equivalent value of a human soul? And we say, "Mm, maybe not, right? If that's true, then this might be an actual violation of the law of equivalent exchange. This might be an act of mercy on the part of truth or or God or the powers that be of this world in this story in response to the fact that Ed negotiates. Because I think the fact that Ed negotiates is absolutely everything. Ed doesn't, he doesn't just take it lying down. (laughs) He says, I will give you whatever I have to. And he's approaching the throne of God with boldness. He loves his brother, and because he loves his brother, he wants something from truth. He wants something from God. And the thing that he wants is his brother back. He wants his brother's soul, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to get there. And that is an act of love that is an antidote to his pride. If his right arm is the hand that reached for the forbidden fruit, it's also the, the thing that he is willing to give up because of his love, because of the fact that he loves his brother. And I think it's really important that he loses his arm in 
response to his negotiation, which is a product of his love. And if that's true, if this is a violation of the law of equivalent exchange, then the one time that we see the law be broken is because of love, is because of Edward's love for his brother, which means mercy, mercy is the act that breaks the law and mercy is only possible because of love. Okay, so you say this might be an act of mercy. Okay, and he actually breaks the law of equivalent exchange. But I think that it's, it's not quite that he breaks the law of equivalent exchange. Or if it is an act of mercy, it may not in fact be a case of breaking the law. It could be the fact that, again, I mean, this is, this is kind of the way that we understand the act of substitutionary sacrifice in the Old Testament. It's a substitution. In other words, the right arm symbolizes some kind of sacrifice which symbolizes the price of the soul, but is in fact not sufficient for the soul. In other words, this giving of the right arm isn't actually a sufficient price. It is just an IOU, um, which is why we, I, we, we sort of speculate about what the end goal of this TV show is going to be. And we think, okay, if we're going to be consistent with the law of equivalent exchange, maybe this price of the arm isn't actually in, going to end up being good enough, and maybe it will come back to bite him. Uh, in other words, like maybe the, the price that he eventually would have to give is his entire body. That's the only thing that is going to pay for a soul, an arm, an eye for an eye, and a, and a tooth for a tooth. And so the, the arm is just a symbol. It's just a kind of substitutionary sacrifice. Um, so what do you think of that, of that theory? I think it's good. I think, it, I think that would make sense. I think it's also possible that in the end, what Ed is going to have to give is something else, that there's something else of equivalent value. Um, and I really do think that that theory works together with the idea that this is an act of mercy because the act of mercy might not be the actual taking of the arm only in and of itself, but the act of mercy might be the delaying. It's, I am willing to accept just your arm for now because the rest is going to be demanded of you later, but there is something you have to do in the meantime. Your love for your brother means that you have to become the sort of person who's going to be able to get his body back. You owe that to him and you owe that to everyone, and that's the way that you're going to be redeemed your life and the life of your brother is going to be restored. You are going to be made whole again by your life and by your suffering. But you have to suffer first. You can't die now. This can't be taken from you now. Part of what you are going to give, part of your sacrifice is your life. It is your suffering. The sacrifice of the unblemished lamb, which was practiced in the, in, in the traditional, traditional Judaism up to the time of Christ, that the role of the substitutionary sacrifice was one of the things that was in dispute when Christ entered into the world and one of the things that he was fundamentally challenging. There was a misunderstanding about what the substitutionary sacrifice actually did because to go back to the story of Abraham and Isaac, God 
tells tells uh, Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and then right at the moment when his hand is raised to slaughter his son, the angel of the Lord says, I know that you fear God. Here is the sacrifice that will take the place, and there's a ram in the thicket. And this sets up the, tr the tradition of the animal being the substitute. And so one of the things that Jesus is bringing into the world when he says that I am the lamb that was slain is he is saying that the, the lamb that you were using as a sacrifice wasn't actually the sacrifice. And that's the thing that the, the Pharisees were so upset about is because they, they assumed that they were actually doing everything that they needed to do. That sacrificing the right arm, so to speak, was actually the price of the human soul. And so they were upset when they were being told that it wasn't actually the price of the human soul. And this idea of the body being the sacrifice is deeply embedded into the imagery of the New Testament and Jesus definitely takes advantage of this. And I think a really interesting instance of the place where Jesus takes advantage of the imagery of the body is the woman who's been caught in adultery. So let's go back to this idea of the hand. The hand of God and the right hand being the hand that reaches, being the hand that commits the sin of playing God. And the hand and this hand also being connected with disembodiment, being disembodied and, and being disconnected from your body, right? Because it's the hand that cuts things up. If you remember, you know, you know the story of uh, Belshazzar in the book of Daniel. They have this, this um, opulent feast of self-indulgence. And what happens? What really crashes the party? A according to Daniel, a disembodied hand appears and starts writing on the wall. A disembodied hand, and it writes, Meeny, meeny, tikala parson, which says, God has numbered your days and brings it and will bring it to an end. And what happens immediately after, afterwards? Belshazzar's, king is Belshazzar's kingdom is divided. So we have the hand of a god judging and dividing the kingdom as a result. Okay, so now we have the woman who's caught in adultery. And the scribes and the Pharisees bring the woman before Jesus and throw her into the midst. And there's, so you can visualize, there's this big circle and everyone's looking at Jesus. And they say, look, Moses commands that we should stone some such women. What do you say? What does Jesus do? He bends down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now John specifically indicates that he wrote with his finger, not just writes on the ground, he writes with his finger. So what is being implied here? It's the hand of God. And that's exactly what uh, would happen if you were to visualize the scene. He's bending over and reaching on the ground. He is directing his attention to his hand. And so, there's been so much speculation about what Jesus was writing on the ground, but in my opinion, I don't think it had anything to do with what he was writing on the ground. It has to do with his hand and bringing attention to his hand because he's saying, 
look at this in the context of the entire story of the Old Testament. Uh, this right here, this is the hand of God. So look at this hand. And so he writes on the ground and they're, they're silence. They're waiting for him to respond. And after a long silence, he stands up and says to them, let him who is, who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone. Like, okay, <laughs> that all now would make sense because he says, okay, look at my hand. This is the hand of God. Now, what did you all do at the beginning of creation? You tried to be God by reaching with your hand and grabbing that forbidden fruit. So whoever has not done that, you, your hand is worthy to condemn. And of course, nobody can do that. Nobody can throw the stone. Um, and that is what takes the wind out of everyone's sails. And that's why it, that's why everyone leaves. That's why everyone, no one has the, 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 the guts to, or the, the gall to, to do what he's bringing attention to. It's like, look at the hand. Who has the role? Who has the, the, um, the right to, to play that place of God and do the condemning? And then after, after everyone leaves, Jesus says, where are they? He says to the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And so I think the significance of this scene is that the only person who ha would have the right to throw the stone does not throw the stone. And that's the act of mercy. So Jesus goes through his entire life not sinning. And what does it mean to not sin? Well, when Jesus, when, when Jesus goes into the desert and the Satan tempts him, he tempts him to commit an alchemical practice. He says, command that these stones be turned into bread. In other words, exercise your, pro, your, your power to change the, 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 the nature of reality. And by the way, Jesus did actually do his... Uh, he, he also played his part in alchemy. He, he, it's not like it's forbidden. It's not like it's forbidden to do because he did turn the water into wine. But there is a certain kind of alchemy, which is alchemy, which is usurping the place of God. That's the thing that I refuse to do. So my hand refuses to condemn. My hand refuses to take the place of God and, and turn these stones into bread. And that's precisely why Jesus can be the sacrifice. And that's why he says, you know, this is my body, which is broken for you. I can be the price of the human soul because I have not <laughs> depreciated my own value by committing the deed and bringing down heaven upon my head. The thing about that that's fascinating to me, too, is that... That, that these first two episodes that we've been talking about are in some sense a little mini version of the Christian story because Edward is both the Adam who reaches and takes the forbidden fruit and he also is the Christ figure because it's his body that is broken. He goes through the rest of the series with a broken body, with a mechanical arm and a mechanical leg, both because what, if he, what he did... And the sin he committed, but then also because of his love. It is his love that broke his body. 
and his body was broken for his brother. And there's obviously, I mean, we haven't even really touched on the Christological imagery and the fact that Christ's wounds are on his hands and on his feet. And the thing that Edward is missing is one of his hands and one of his feet, right? He's missing an arm and a leg. But then also I think the other symbol that is important here, and this is probably the, the last thing we have time to talk about, is the symbol of alchemy in this world is a symbol that Edward wears everywhere. So he has this red coat that's really iconic. If you look at imagery of like cover art of Full Metal Alchemist, the series, you'll see Edward Elric, this little tiny Full Metal Alchemist with his mechanical arm and his mechanical leg and a red coat. And on his red coat, there is a symbol. And the symbol is a cross with a snake kind of wrapped around it. And this symbol is traditionally associated with alchemy. Not this exact version of the symbol, which I believe was made up for, for the manga or for the anime, but the, the symbol of a crucified snake is a symbol that is traditionally associated with alchemy. And it goes back to this Hebrew image uh, called the Nehushtan, which is the image of this snake on a cross, which comes from a story in the Old Testament where... Moses puts a snake on a, on a stick on a pole, um, which historically, traditionally, we view as a version of the cross. This is an early image of, like, a crucified snake of the cross. And it's also the symbol that we use in, in, that, in hospitals now, the, med- the, the medical symbol, because it is about putting the body, the broken body back together. Right. Because it is, if the, if the Israelites look to this crucified snake, to this image, then they are going to be healed. And the healing of the body is what comes, is what comes from this image. So here we have this, this little, this little Christ figure who is on this quest, on this mission to restore both his own body and the body of his brother. And he bears with him everywhere this image of a snake on a cross, this image of both healing the body and the sacrifice that is able to make the body whole. And here's the kicker. Here's what I think ties that all together. So we talked earlier about how Edward Elric, he endures the curse of Satan because he is his own tempter. He loses his leg, which is what happens to Satan. Satan or the serpent is forced to crawl in his belly on the ground. His limbs are taken away from him. So Edward Elric, in some sense, is the serpent in this story. This is a Garden of Eden where Edward Elric is his own tempter, like we talked about earlier. But he also gives his body to be broken for his brother. He's also the the Christ figure. He gives of his own body. He is broken. He does it in order to save his brother's life. So I think it's particularly fitting that Edward bears the image of a crucified serpent on his back, He's literally carrying a cross with him wherever he goes on his back. So he's carrying a cross just like Christ does in the Passion narrative. When he is going to be crucified, Christ carries his own cross. And that's what Edward Elric does too. Edward Elric is both the serpent and the victim, the tempter and the tempted. He is the crucified serpent. Thanks. Thanks for coming on this journey with us, everybody. Uh, Hopefully you are less confused than we are (laughs) yeah maybe you can put put the puzzle back together for us send us an email write to us thanks for listening everyone thanks for listening 
You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by STOA alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us, review us, or write to us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash unreliablenarratorspodcast. A very special shout out to our newest patrons, Amy Klomperens and Jenny Bucola. This podcast is produced by Raymond Okapil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme song is New Moon by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the Pixar short, Bow. Until then, friends, the next time you need to buy a human soul, just remember, it costs an arm and a leg. I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide And maybe it's true that nothing is new But I can see so much more in you There are no new words under the sun Strong.